This morning's scripture reading is going to be taken from Joshua, the fifth chapter, verses 10 through 15. And God's word reads, On the evening of the fourteenth day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now when Joshua was was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is God's word. You may be seated. that outline out that you find in the uh, in the, the announcement sheet. We're going to use that as we go through the sermon. And while you're doing that, just a reminder to all the guys that we have a prayer luncheon this Tuesday at noon. It's going to be in the small kitchen, and we would like for all of the guys to be a part of that. If you need some more information, contact uh, John Skipworth. And uh, before we have our prayer, uh, and before we get into the message this morning, uh, I, w- I want to pray for, for Kirby and, and Dan. Uh, as you know, Kirby uh, Tomberlin is no longer co- uh, Kirby Tomberlin. She is Kirby Ampline. She and Dan uh, were married last night. Uh, has to be, uh, I know it's the fastest wedding ceremony I've ever performed in my life and probably will always be the fastest. The, uh, the, the wedding was supposed to start at 4 o'clock. And as I'm walking up for everything to start, we hear thunder. And it's an outdoor wedding. And those two things normally don't go together very well. And as the music starts, drop here, drop there, drop here, drop there. Uh, All of the attendants and the bridesmaids and the groomsmen come in. By the time that Kirby comes in and we have everybody stand, it is a downpour. And we, uh, we, you know, everybody has a great attitude about it, and everybody's being very flexible, and we're kind of chuckling. She gets up on the, uh, on the, the arbor with Dan, and I go, Kirby, why don't we go straight to the bows and the rings and then to the reception? And she said, okay. And so we did, we did the bows, we did the rings, we pronounced, kiss your bride, send them away, and then in 10 minutes, that was a 10 minutes from 4 o'clock to 4.10, we got them hitched. And they are on their way to Tennessee. And, uh, you know, we're, we're thankful for, for Kirby and Dan. Kirby, if you're visiting with us, is our children's minister and, and a precious, uh, precious young woman working with our children. And as we pray to get ready to, to study God's Word, we're going to pray that God keep uh, Kirby and Dan safe all the days of their life together as husband and wife. Pray with me. Father, thank You for the life that we have in Christ and for every blessing that comes to us because not just of the knowledge, but the reality of that relationship. You embrace us so tightly. We, we are Yours and, and You are ours. And we pray, Father, that 
that in every every thought, in in every action, in every affection, every emotion that we have in this life, Father, that it all be surrendered to You and that You, Father, capture it. And that all of our thoughts and emotions and actions and affections be holy in Your sight as we represent and mirror Your presence not only in our life, Father, but in the world through the way that we live. We're thankful for marriage. And we're thankful for for Dan's life and for Kirby's life and the faith that they have. And we pray that You bless them during this honeymoon period, Father, and that You keep them safe and bless them with wisdom and self-control and patience throughout all the years of their marriage. And that when people look at their marriage, Father, they get an understanding of what the Gospel is all about. And as we study this Word this morning, Father, out out of the entire book of Joshua, we're praying that You give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And all the church said, Amen. We're going to start off with a statement that we always start off with as we go through the Bible this year. If you're visiting with us in 2014... We're doing a series we're calling Holy Words, and we're starting in Genesis, and we're going to go through the entire Bible in one year. And a statement that we're using to describe this study and our view of the Bible and what we believe the Bible is, is this statement that's up on the screen. The Bible is not a collection of random stories. It's not an anthology of of myths. It's, It's not a compendium. Of, of, of laws or just poetry or different kinds of ancient primitive literature. We do not believe it's a collection of, of random stories at all. But we believe that it is one story about the God who made the, the heavens and the earth and created man and created woman. It's about man. It's about what went wrong, the fall, and how sin entered into the world and what God is doing to put it back together. Now last Sunday night we looked at the very last book of Torah, which is the book of Deuteronomy, the last book that we call in, in, uh, in the Western world the Pentateuch, the five scrolls. In the Jewish world or in the, in the Eastern world, it's known as Torah. Uh, we, we call it the Pentateuch, the last book. Moses wrote Deuteronomy. And when you get to Deuteronomy, you're at the end of the 40 years of wandering around in the desert. And as you know, in chapter 1, chapter 4, and chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, basically Moses is giving three sermons. They are, you know, Deuteronomy is a book that's on the boundary. The people of Israel are on the border of the promised land and Israel's history of faith in, in, in relation to God, in relation to the people, the inhabitants of the land, and the land itself has not been very healthy. And that's why they've been wandering around for 40 years. And at the end of chapter 34, after Moses has said all of the things that he wants to say to the people in kind of a, a, a parting shot, as a, a, a parting admonishment and encouragement to the people to embrace God, And to keep their eyes focused on God, regardless of what they might see in the land, to keep their eyes focused on God. In chapter 34, Moses goes up from the uh, plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, and from Mount Nebo to the top of, of Pisgah, which is just across, just opposite of Jericho. And while he's up there on that high place, the Lord shows him all of the land. And it's a very poignant moment in the reading of the Bible. You feel when you're done reading the life of Moses that there is this tremendous chapter that's coming to a slow close. And in Deuteronomy 34, beginning in verse 5, this is how the book ends. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab. 
We could meditate on that Scripture right there. The tenderness of, of God in bearing Moses. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beit Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet, his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved over Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. And now this morning, we go into the book of Joshua, the very next book, and the opening words of Joshua begin this way. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Now, the first 12 chapters of Joshua is about those verses coming true as a reality in the life of Israel, in the history of Israel. Joshua assumes command and he readies the people to go into the promised land. He sends two spies into Canaan. And you know the story of how they are hidden by the prostitute Rahab before returning to Joshua. Then Joshua leads the people west across the Jordan into the promised land. And you will remember that as the people left Egypt, the Red Sea parted and they were able to cross the Red Sea and, es <coughs> and escape Pharaoh's army on dry land. The same thing happens when the Jordan River dries up for a period of time in order for Israel to cross over into that promised land. Same kind of thing happens. And the first city that is going to be taken in the conquest of the land is the great city of Jericho with its gigantic walls. And it is nearly impenetrable. At least it is from a human standpoint. But on the seventh day, according to the strategy that God has passed on to Joshua and the people are following faithfully, the walls come down and the city is taken. It is a gigantic city and it is a populous city and it's a famous city. And they take it. The next is Ai, which is a very small city in comparison. It's a, a much smaller city. But Ai defeats Israel because they're presumptuous on one hand, and on the other hand, a fellow by the name of Achan has stolen some of the devoted things, the things that had a ban on them that they were not to take and keep for themselves. He has done that. He has found out among all of the people of Israel. He is punished, and the conquest resumes with Ai, Ai following to Joshua and to all of Israel. And it's about this time that Israel makes an imprudent treaty with the people of, of, of Gibeon, the Gibeonites, and they realize that it's all been a ruse. But when the five kings attack Gibeon, Israel is good to her word. And they rescue the Gibeonites from their enemies. And here, in chapter 10, at that point, Israel turns south and conquers all the land to the south. And then in chapter 11, they turn north and take the northern part of the promised land. And then there is rest from war. In chapter 13, you read of how the land was divided among the tribes and, and the cities of refuge and the dwelling places of the Levites, how that was all arranged. In the middle of that, that section, the latter half of the book, there's a little misunderstanding between the tribes of, of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh about staying on the east side of the Jordan. But all of that is solved to, to everybody's, everybody's um, uh, agreement. And then beginning in chapter 23, Joshua gives his farewell address by reviewing Israel's history. And he reminds the people, there's, there's, there's a tremendous lesson to learn here in, in, 
in being reminded of your history with God. Of being reminded of the ways that God has intervened and intersected your life and how He has come swooping out of the clouds, it seems at times, to rescue you. Or has done it in a very quiet way. And as you look back, and, and hindsight's always twenty twenty. you look back over your life and you begin to see that God was here and God was there and God was doing this and God was doing that. That's what Joshua is doing in chapter 23. He's reminding the people in his farewell address, kind of the same way that Moses did it in Deuteronomy, he's letting the people remember all of the ways that God has been faithful to them so they need to be faithful to God. And then he says in verse 14 of chapter 24, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, but as for me and my household, say the last five words with me, we will serve the Lord. Now we've gone through Joshua fairly quickly. And the reason for that is that last year, as part of our Insight Seminar and our Insight Study Period, we looked at the book of Joshua for 13 weeks. And you can go back to the, to the website or go back to your notes and you can get the sermons, you can get the notes, you can get the lessons. But what I want to do, besides just giving us kind of a run-through as a reminder and a, 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 a way of kind of refreshing our memory, the story of Joshua and the taking of the land, I want us to look at a little passage that we did not really spend any time with in those 13 weeks that we looked at last year in the book of Joshua. I want to look at this passage that Steve read for us just a minute ago, this, this strange little event that takes place right before the battle of Jericho that sets the pace for the rest of the book. Now, Joshua, Joshua is near Jericho. And he looks up. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're like me, most people usually look down while they're thinking. And I, I think Joshua has been thinking about Jericho before he looks up and sees this character that, that is there before him. He's been thinking about Jericho. I don't think that this is Joshua's first time to gaze upon Jericho. He was part of that crew that went in, those 12 spies, or those, those, uh, those, um, those 12 agents of Israel that went into the land for 40 days, 40 years earlier, after they had come out of Egypt and they had been slaves for a long time. You know, 40 years earlier, they had sent these spies in, and those spies had, had come back in Numbers chapter 13 while they were, they were camped at Kadesh Barnea. And they came back with, with, with sort of a terrible report about the land. Now, these spies that go into the land, according to Numbers chapter 13, they go all the way. They are, they're at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 13, which is on the southern end of the promised land. When you read Numbers 13, verse 21, they have gone all the way north of the Sea of Galilee, which is on the northern end of the Promised Land, to Labo Hamat. And if they traveled the old patriarchal road, also known as the Ridge Route, which is very likely because they talk about seeing all the fortified cities on the way, they would have come very close to Jericho 40 years earlier. 
And when those spies, as you know, get back to Israel, they give a very discouraging report that is a catalyst for the people to reject God once again and to not trust Him once again to fulfill the promise, to give them the land that has been a promise to their forefathers and to them for centuries and centuries. And you know what they said? They said if we had only died in Egypt, why did God bring us all the way out here? And they began to wander for 40 years. Now in Joshua 5, Moses is dead and Joshua is 40 years older. Caleb is 85 years of age. And I think that he's standing there and he's remembering what the ten spies said. You know, we cannot take this land. We're going to die by the sword. Our families will be taken as plunder and, and returned to slavery. And he's probably remembering how he and Caleb told the people, do not fear. Fear is rebellion. Don't be afraid. Do not rebel against God in this way. Don't rebel by being afraid. Your unwillingness to do this hard thing is sin. It's unfaithfulness. It's what they were saying to to all of Israel. Now, when you think about courage and you think about bravery, you think, you know, either I have it or I don't have it. You know, I'm, I'm a brave guy and I'm able to face this thing, or I'm not a very brave guy and... Maybe not completely a coward, but I don't have the requisite courage to be able to face up to this thing, so I can't do it. Now, the Bible has a a, a very different understanding of this kind of cowardice. Cowardice, the lack of courage, the lack of trust, the lack of obedience to do the amazing thing that God calls people to do is sin. It's a very interesting, startling verse. It's, It's sort of an unsettling line. In the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, John writing to a church that is under the sword of Rome. And many of them literally dying because they will not deny Jesus. They will not renege on the commitment that they made at their baptism when they confess that Jesus is Lord. They are literally dying for their faith, but others are not. And at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 7, those who are victorious, John writes, will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. Verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, if you were to think very carefully or for a moment about you know, the second death, about the, you know, that, that fiery lake of burning sulfur and who is going to be assigned to that, you would probably think of you know, mass murderers. You would probably think of, of, uh, of, of murderers, of sexually immoral people perhaps, those that practice divine magic arts. How unsettling is it though to see those words But the cowardly. But the cowardly. And as Joshua is reliving all of these thoughts and thinking about what happened at Kadesh Barnea and wondering how are we going to do it this time, he looks up. And he sees a man standing in front of him. And this man has a drawn sword and he's armed to the teeth and he's ready for war. This is a man that's ready for action. He's a man that's ready to attack. And Joshua, we don't really know how old he is. Maybe he's about 80 years old, but he is the commander. He is the general. He goes up. When the Bible says that he went up to him, it means he got into his face. 
He got into the face of the man who is armed with a sword, who is ready to fight, who looks like he's, he's ready to go to battle. And in many ways, because Joshua has gone up to this guy in this way, the battle has already begun. And he asks, are you my friend or are you my enemy? Now you have two options here. Are you my friend? Then we're on the same side. If you're my enemy, then on guard. Two options. And this man who's standing in front of Joshua has a drawn sword, armed to the teeth, ready to go, a man of action that Joshua has gone up to, this man has two choices. You're either for me or against me. And he says, neither. <laughs> he says, neither. He rejects both. And he says, I am the commander of the Lord's host. People are either for me or against me. And Joshua the general falls on his face and he says, command me. Command me. This is what do you have a message for me means. And the commander says to him, you take off your sandals because you're standing in a holy place. Joshua is experiencing what other great character of the Old Testament experienced at a fiery bush. What's the name of that character? Moses. Now, there's been a lot of debate over the years about who this character is in Joshua chapter 5 that, that, Jesus, that, uh, that, uh, that Joshua is encountering. I believe that this is Jesus. Is it not true that God will come down in the form of a human and deliver His people? Is it not true... That when we read the Bible, we read of God coming down in a human form and delivering His people and helping them to win the battles that they have no hope of winning. It's mysterious, this incarnation, but true, that we read about in the New Testament. I, a, a lot of people believe that it's an angel. I don't think that this is an angel because angels do not accept worship. At the end of Revelation, John tries to worship an angel, but the angel says, don't do it because I am a servant too. Worship God. And this angel gets pretty upset with John when John tries to worship him. But this man in Joshua chapter 5 accepts Joshua bowing down before him and takes it one step further. He says, you take your shoes off because you are in the presence of holiness itself. You are in the presence of beginninglessness. This is holy ground. And what I think that Joshua is experiencing here is a preliminary manifestation of the eternal Word of God, the second member of the Trinity, come in the fullness of time, that later born of woman, to redeem those under the law. He is the one who will always come and relate us to God. And then, number two, this, this Jesus is great and powerful and holy. There is a theme that is developing throughout the Old Testament if, if you've been doing your readings. You remember that Jacob meets God as a wrestler and wrestles with Him in the person there at a place called Peniel. And then later on, as we get into the wisdom literature, we're going to read about God uh, meeting Job in a tornado, in a, in a whirlwind. And here, Joshua is meeting God as a warrior with, as a drawn sword. And when you think about God as a warrior, and you think about God as a tornado, and if you think about God as a wrestler, you know what you don't get here? A lot of warm and fuzzy. It's not a, lo a lot of warm and fuzzy, but there is greatness here. And there is every superlative here that you can imagine. And if you do not see that, then how can His love and His presence transform you? 
It will not because you do not see Him as powerful and holy. You do not hear Him saying to you, no or neither, and it means something. How many times you think about your own personal life and a temptation and you hear God saying no or neither, but because He is just loving to you, but not great and powerful and holy, you don't obey. This one says to Joshua, you are in the presence of holiness itself. Take off your shoes. And Joshua bows down before him. It's a question of lordship, not just of Savior. You know, another way to think about it is, if you invite me into your house, you can say, I would like to have Mark Absher come in, you know, have dinner with me. One of the things that you cannot say is, I would like to invite Mark to come in, but Absher has to stay outside. You can't do that. I would not be able to come in if you said, you know, Mark, come in, Absher, stay out, because I am both. Mark, Absher. I can't even say I'm half Mark and half Absher. I'm all Mark and all Absher at the same time. This half of me can come in and this half can stay out. can't happen. It's impossible because I'm all Mark Absher. Now, a lot of times we have the same struggle with Jesus. We want Jesus to be loving. We want Jesus to be kind. We want Jesus to be compassionate. We want Jesus to be the, sor- the, the source, the fount of every blessing that comes into our life. We want a helping Jesus. Not a holy Jesus. And when you think about what the Hebrew writer says about this Jesus, that He sustains the universe with His Word, the greatness of His might, the greatness of His power, the, 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 the incomprehensible depth of His holiness, how do you ask someone like that to be your assistant in life? To help me get a better life. Everyone comes to God initially like, jo- like Joshua. I have an agenda. You're either with me or you're against me. I have something that's on my heart. You're either for me or against me. You are for me, then good. Then help me in relationships or help me in finances or help me with a job. And as long as you do this, then you can ask Jesus to be your assistant. How is it that we come to Him with conditions? One thief on the cross says, Are you for me or against me? Jesus, are you for me or against me? If you're for me, I want to live, so get me off this cross. The second thief says that it doesn't matter if, 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 if any that that first thief said was important. It didn't matter if God was for or against him, but rather, was he for, that is, the thief, was he for God? And when you see who it really is in Joshua 5, then you understand why those walls of Jericho were not any problem whatsoever. And whatever problem that you face in this life is taken care of when you follow the commander of the Lord of hosts. But you will always be afraid and you will always be hesitant. 
And at times you will even be cowardly even when the path is clear and even when the line is, is so delineated that you know exactly what to do, what to say, you will still falter. You will still falter until God is that kind of a powerful commander in your life that you're willing to follow. And when He says no or neither, it means something because you're in the presence of holiness. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And maybe there is a Jericho in your life or an AI, those representing different kinds of issues that people have, spiritually speaking, with God and trust and whether or not they're going to be faithful and whether or not they're going to be able to overcome the things that God has called them to conquer in their life. God has called all of us to live a victorious kind of life. But He's also called us that in that victorious kind of living that we follow Him as the commander at all times. He is our general. He is our commander. And maybe you haven't been very faithful to that in the days and, and, and maybe even the months and the weeks leading up to this moment. But now you see more clearly than ever before that you haven't taken your shoes off in the presence of Jesus. You do not hear Him saying no or neither. You keep asking Him if He's for you. And if this morning you've decided that you want to be for Him, that you are for Him, then we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. I can hear my Savior calling. I can hear.